We come now to God's word. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 50. And then Pastor Stephen's going to come and preach for us today. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and welcome to WDBC Online. I wanted to start this morning's sermon, uh, this morning's sermon by, by looking at a couple of themes Pastor Jonathan Hoffman had us look at last week, uh, when we saw Jesus transfigured on top of the mountain uh, with his disciples. Uh, Jonathan was showing us how it, it was the glory of God, they're in the presence of the glory of God when Jesus transfigures. And it's much like that of Moses who, who walks up onto the Mount Sinai in the wilderness experience and, and he's enveloped into the cloud of God and he's experiencing the presence of God. And just as Jesus was discussing what the will of God is to do with Moses and Elijah, so Moses was discussing the will of God for his people through the handing him of the law. And just as Jesus comes back down the mountain after his one day, so Moses comes back down after 40 days to God's people. And we have Moses come down with God's will written on stone, and we have Jesus come down as the very word of God made flesh to his people. And these two stories have striking similarities all the way through it, and Luke, by all means, is trying to show us these similarities the similarity that I want to point out for you this morning is both these biblical figures, they come down the mountain, and the first thing that they're met with when they find God's people again is unbelief. 
Jesus is gone one day and he comes back to his disciples and they've fallen into unbelief. Moses, after his 40 days, comes back down and he finds God's people worshipping a golden calf, an idol. And I want you to imagine with me this morning that you got to experience the Exodus event. All you have ever known your whole life is slavery in Egypt, but you have some distant past memory handed down from you from ancestor to ancestor that you are actually meant to leave this place, that you are going to be so numerous and there is a land for you that God is preparing in advance for you. That along comes Moses, the liberator of your people. You experience the nine plagues. You see the angel of death come down from heaven and it sweeps through the land. You are the one who has taken a lamb and, and painted your, your doorpost to make sure that your child is safe. You've heard the mourning in the middle of the night from all the Egyptians who have lost their firstborn sons. You have awoken in the morning and you've looked these Egyptians in their sorrow-filled eyes as you take the gold from around their necks and their earrings because you know it costs them their child for you to be liberated. You walk out into the desert and you were given water from a rock. You were fed bread from heaven. There is a pillar of smoke that you follow by day and behind you a pillar of fire that protects you from the enemy. Seas are parted for you so that you might walk on dry ground and you turn around and you look at the same water that you just came through and you watch it crush and conquer God's enemy. Imagine experiencing all of this. And then last to say that as they come before Mount Sinai, it is on fire. There is smoke covering it like a big thick cloud and inside there is lightning, there is, there is thunder, there is this glowing illumination on top of the mountain and you watch Moses this little tiny human figure making his way up and so you cannot see him anymore and you know God is there he's on this mountain how fast would it take you to forget that because we look at that experience of Israel I think most of us look at me like how can you be so dumb right so unbelieving, so hard of heart that you chase after an idol after 40 days. We sit there and we think, I would never do this. But actually, as Israel shows, the reality proves we would do that. And that's what we come to when we come to this story this morning. Jesus has spent one night, one night on a mountain and he comes down to his disciples and they've fallen into unbelief or lack of faith. And so the sermon this morning, I've titled it Unbelief, Its Effects and Its Cures. Unbelief, Its Effects and Its Cures. And I don't think that there is a topic that I could preach on that is more important than this. Because faith, trust in Jesus, is the way of salvation. And so if I was going to put that in its negative stance, it would be this. Unbelief is the way of damnation. And the great work of the enemy, the great work of Satan, is to cause you to come into unbelief or to cause you to become into a perversion of faith as to lead you away from God, as to lead you away from the will of God so that there is no longer a relationship between you and him. You see, the devil delights 
in working against the will of God, in working against the redemption of this world. And within these short passages that we look at this morning, we're going to see that Jesus' disciples, they do experience unbelief. But Jesus expects them not to live in it. He expects them not to live there and not to remain in it. And so this morning we get inside or signposts, if you will, or three effects that reveal that there is unbelief in the believer, in the believer, unbelief in the follower. <clears throat> and there are three cures for unbelief. The three effects of unbelief, signposts, if you will, is this. Unbelief causes a foothold for the devil amongst God's people. Unbelief causes a foothold for the devil amongst God's people. Number two, unbelief causes prayerlessness amongst God's people. And number three, unbelief causes division among God's people. These are things that you can look out for. These are the effects of unbelief. Now, by no means is this list exhaustive, but they are ones that are addressed in this passage, so they're the ones we will look at. As I said, it's not just to know the effects, but the cures. I think I would be doing a horrible job of pastoring if I said, well, here's all the problems, catch you later. <laughs> the cures. How do, how do we remedy what this is? And the Lord, in his mercy and in his grace to us, he provides safety and rocks and refuges for us to help us in our unbelief and our perversion of faith. And the cures of these things are this. Number one, remembrance, as we just heard in the prayer this morning, remembrance is a cure for unbelief. Number two, continual seeking is a cure for unbelief. And number three, humility is a cure for unbelief. These cures given to us from God, they're, they're graces of human activities that we can do to fight the good fight, Paul would say, of faith. And so please note well here again, the true fight in Christianity is the fight of faith. Paul will say, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. That's what he was fighting for, the faith. Now what there is in store for me is a crown of righteousness. Crown of righteousness comes by faith, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only me, all of those who long to see his appearing. You need to fight the good fight of faith, so you need to know how to fight, or better yet, how to cure or know how to work against unbelief. As I said, there is no greater priority for the Christian in his walk. There is nothing that you can do without faith. And so we move now into scriptures to look at these effects and to look at their cures. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, I give you thanks that you know that we lack, that you are powerful enough to save even in our unbelief, but Lord, you do not want us to stay there. I thank you, Father, that within your word, we seek encouragement and guidance, that we find you within the written word. As Holy Spirit, you have given it to us. So lead us this morning, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so after the transfiguration, Jesus comes down with Peter, James, and John, that inner circle that Jesus has. And the first thing he is met with 
is the works of the devil prevailing against his disciples. There is a father who is pleading with Jesus for his only son to be delivered from a demonic force. And when this demonic force comes along, comes along or he attacks, so to speak, into the boy, it causes him to fall over. He becomes all bruised and all scratched up. He starts shrieking. There's foam out his mouth. And he's a bit of a mess. And if you were to witness this outworking of this demon, you would probably put this down to epilepsy. You would say the boy's got epilepsy. He goes into a fit. However, Luke, our author, he is a doctor. He knows that this isn't a, a medical issue, it's a satanic force. And so we would do well as a church to remember that enemy forces are still at work today. Indeed, Satan and his dominion works best when we have an unbelief that it isn't there. Our church lives in a country and in an age where spiritual realities are called make-believe. If you can't touch it, if you can't see it, if it's, if it's not something that we can hold, therefore it must not be true. And it embarrasses me to say that but if this boy were here today, if he were to walk into many of the churches in Australia, he would never get actually the right diagnosis. He'd never get deliverance from the evil spiritual force. He'd be given medication up to his eyeballs and sedated, and he'd live forever with a demon attacking him. That would most likely be the reality that he'd come into. Now, I'm not suggesting that every disease and every illness like epilepsy or mental disorder is a demon, nor am I saying that medication is an act of unfaith to do. Jesus himself could distinguish between an illness and a spiritual force. Luke was a doctor who practiced medicine and was not known to be unfaithful to the church. What I'm saying is if there is no category that some ailments in people can be the work of the devil, then we are blinded by unbelief in the workings of the demons. And it is exactly that workings that Jesus is fighting against. He is fighting spiritual warfare. So first understand that Christianity is a spiritual belief. We have so many books written on the idea, the logic of God, you know, the reason for God. It just, it just all makes sense. But the belief is spiritual. The God who is spirit made the physical dominion that we live in. God himself is spirit and he fights against evil spiritual forces. And both of these spiritual entities have real physical, real life consequences to what happens here on earth. For instance, if you are saved and the Spirit of the Lord lives inside you, you are changed. You are a new human being. You are the new creation. And so you do not walk in sins anymore. You have changed. It is the Spirit of God in you that is changing the reality. Likewise, demons can have real control over the physical body of us. And I force this point because whether we do this intentionally or not in churches, we generally push demonic forces back into the Bible and we just go, well, here's an illustration for you. But they're here and they're real. Angels, demons, the Spirit of God, the souls of us, these are real realities. They are things to be believed in. 
The beauty of it is Jesus gave his followers authority and power, the spirit of God over demonic forces so that they cannot prevail. Jesus believed in and fought on these grounds. The problem we come to with the disciples this morning is they can't heal the boy. They can't heal the boy, which is odd because in chapter 9, verses 1, Jesus gave them the power to do it. And they've done it. But now they no longer exercise the authority. Why? Jesus states it clearly, lack of faith. Your unbelief. The disciples' inability to exercise over a demon is a sign to Jesus of unbelief. So please note again, Scripture is saying they have the ability given to them by Jesus Christ, yet the devil is prevailing because of their unbelief. This is a hard word to swallow, is it not? Sometimes the reason God is inactive in this world and in our lives is not because of his abilities nor his desires, but because we lack faith in him to do so. And if this comes as a surprise to you or you feel offended by that, read back through Luke. Jesus will often say, I cannot do much here. There's just, there's no faith. Now, I know that words like this have been used to completely strip churches of any hope. And I know pastors who preach, well, if you pray it by faith, you'll receive it. And if you don't, then that's not God's problem, that's your problem. Have more faith. Please don't hear me saying that. That's not what I'm saying. It's much more complex than that. Sometimes the Lord does not move in our prayers because it's simply not his will to do so. It's not his agenda and we're not praying according to it. Sometimes in our sinful hearts, we are actually praying for things that we do not understand and God is like, I'm not going to give you that. That does not lead you closer to me. That actually leads you further from me. And sometimes the Lord in his goodness, he will give us ailments or problems because it causes a greater dependency on him, which it causes a greater faith and that's what he's trying to produce in us. Or sometimes he will make you so weak and so fragile because he knows that you will be faithful and in that faithfulness you will shine and give glory to God to those around you. How great is the witness of those who are weak. That's why Paul says in my weakness he is so strong and powerfully at work within me. You see it's much more complicated than just blanket stating and saying well if you believe it when you pray it you'll receive it. Yet we also have to wrestle with the tension in Scripture that God's power is not always shown in us because we lack faith in Him. And that's point number one. Unbelief, lack of faith in the power of God causes an inability for His followers to do the very work of God. And so I ask you, are you reigning over your enemies? God has the power to reign over your enemies, but by faith, do you trust in it? Now, am I still speaking on evil spiritual forces? Yes, I am. Every saint has the power to rebuke the enemy force. But I'm also talking about sins and acts of the flesh, vices. Do you live by faith in God that he can rid you of these outworkings where the devil might have gotten the foothold? 
Because the devil is not just in the business of making you fall over and get hurt. He is in the business of causing in you unbelief to pull you away from God. And we must understand that sin, it is not merely a physical act, it has a spiritual reality that is behind it. Ephesians would say it like this, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Before the spirit of God breathes life into the believer, they are unable to stop living in sin because they are held captive by the ruler of the kingdom of air, that is Satan. The evil spirit proves he is at work in them through the physical acts of disobedience towards God. Sin, disobedience towards God, is a sign that one is still following the ways of the old master. Sin is a spiritual reality that is working itself out physically. And so when we get captivated by our old vices or the old ways of life or we just lazily want to give up persevering, walking with God, falling prey to those things, we are not just doing them blankly, we are actually joining hands with the one that rebels against God. Sin is a sign of an unbelieving heart where the devil still gets the foothold. So how do we get rid of it? Our remedy this morning is remembrance. It sounds nonsensical, but let me explain. Because if I told you the cure to unbelief is it's belief, I don't think that would help you very much. The cure here is remembrance, remembering where the power and the victory comes from. When this father of this child went to Jesus' disciples and they could not cure the boy, the father remembered The disciples have power because it was given to them by their master, Jesus. And he brought his son before Jesus, and Jesus, with nothing more than the power of his word, spoke, delivered the child, and restored him back to his dad. You see, you have to remember where the source and the power of God is in Christ. You can't defeat a demon in your own strength. You cannot even stop sinning in your own strength. And this is where the church forfeits all its power that it has in the world when it does not remember its Lord, whom all power and authority comes from. You know, I can recall a time in my life when I was saved and as I was slowly being discipled, I I would cry so much because I just could not get rid of all these nasty things in my life. And I knew that my Lord didn't want me to walk in it because the spirit within me was testifying that I wasn't supposed to be in it. And I just couldn't get free. And I remember reading through Romans 8 one night and it all came to me. Brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, that's into our sins, because if we live according to them, we're going to die. But if we live by the Spirit of God, you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. How many of us are trying to defeat the enemy in our lives in our own strength? When scripture reminds us over and over and over again, it is the power of God through the Holy Spirit that we put to death the enemy in the ways of the flesh. 
Do you remember that it is God who first set you free? That it is Jesus Christ who had the victory over the enemies? That it is by his power? Remember who it is that lives in you. The Holy Spirit who raises dead men back to life. It is he who has the power. It is he who has the authority. It is he who we must remember. Whatever these disciples were doing, it was in a mere human strength which can do nothing. Remember who Jesus is, what he has promised to do. You see, this is the purpose of communion and the grace given to us. When you eat this meal, remember, I am the reason you are saved. I am the reason that you have victory. I am the reason for your sanctification and I am the reason for your glorification. It is me who does that work in you. If you find yourself wallowing in unbelief, turn to God's word. Remind yourself of the goodness of God. If you're wallowing in unbelief, cling to your brothers and sisters in Christ and let them encourage you and remind you of the goodness of God. Remember the work that God has already done in your life. These things are all given to us in times of unbelief. You know, it amazes me how much God tells Israel. He doesn't give them more signs to be like, I'm still here, I'm still with you. He says, remember what I did. These are generations that have never seen the hand of God so mightily at work. I'm not gonna give you signs. Remember how you got here. You got here because I delivered you. While everyone is still amazed at Jesus' miracles and praising God because of it, you can't help but hear a bit of a sigh of frustration from Jesus as he predicts his death for a second time. Let these words sink in, disciples. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. You know, there is a point where miracles actually can have the adverse effect on people. You might think that's wrong, but it's true. Miracles are signs given to us of who Jesus is. And they're to cause in us a stirring of faith. John says, my whole reason I write this account to you is so that by seeing these signs and these miracles, you might come to faith. They are therefore to draw us into faith, but sometimes in our sinful hearts, we just desire to see the sign again. Do it again, Jesus, do it again. Now, that's not what's happening here. A father's concerned for his son. But how many people right here are praising God for the sign and not praising God for the Messiah? None. No one's sitting here praising God for their Messiah. How many miracles is it going to take, disciples? How many signs must I give until you're going to put some faith in me? How long will I put up with you? Now, whilst miracles are good for humanity, the goal is to produce faith. This is what he's looking for in his people. When Jesus teaches them about the will of God, that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed by his own people and give them over into human hands, No one cares about the will of God. Do the sign. 
but I don't really care about knowing your will. Come on, bless us, but I'm not concerned with what you're doing. Now, in the disciples' defense, it is saying that the words of Jesus are concealed. That is mean they're divinely hidden from them. And you always got to wonder at God, don't you? He sends his son Jesus to communicate to us. And then somehow it's all hidden from us. <laughs> Why do you talk like this, Jesus? Why do you use parables? Even Jesus himself says, I talk in such a way so you can't understand me. Thanks a lot. But just like parables and concealed words, why is God doing this? He wants us to inquire of him. He wants us to ask of him. Look at the end statement. They were afraid to ask him about it. The disciples know if they asked Jesus, Jesus would tell them what's going on. He'd be happy to share. Every time they've asked, he is happy to share. They're afraid. They're afraid of what Jesus might tell them is actually going to happen according to the will of God. So what do they do? They stop inquiring. Well, we don't want to know that because that might actually stuff up the plans that we had of our own little wills of what we want you to do as Messiah. And this kind of faith, happy to know Jesus as the Messiah, well, you do your thing up there, but uh, we'll kind of set the tone of your agenda this is perversion of faith. Doesn't care for the will of God. Disciples had a plan. God, that's your Messiah. Good. Sweet. But Messiah, you'll do what we want to do. So when Jesus says, well, it's about my death, it's not a real topic that they want to dig into at the moment. And so I've got to ask, is there perversion of faith in our church which is just as much a work of the devil as his unbelief, because it does the exact same thing. Leads people away from God, only it's worse because you believe that you're still following God. Do you still inquire of the Lord of what his will is, not yours, his? Or are you too scared to ask that because it might come at the cost of you not doing what you want to do anymore? Now, I'm sure that you, in your times, you sit there and you ask God, God, what am I supposed to do in all these circumstances? What am I supposed to do in this financial situation? What am I supposed to do with my family and what have you? And those are good things. You ask the Lord for all these different things. But how many of you are actually asking God, God, what is it that you want for my life, your will for my life? Not what I want to do and hopefully you just bless these little parts of tension in my life. What do you want me to do? Not, Lord, can you please do this for me? I want to take you back to that golden calf. As I said, we all sit there and we think how stupid to worship an idol after the Lord has just worked so powerfully. Why would you do that? And the answer is it's really quite easy. It's called a perversion of faith. When Aaron melts down all that gold from their earrings and their jewelry and what have you, the stuff that they got off the Egyptians, which should have reminded them, you know, God, they molt it down, they build this calf, and then Aaron says to the people, here is your God, here is the one that brought you out of Egypt, 
And then he says to them, hey guys, you know it'll be really sweet? Tomorrow when we wake up, let's have a big party in the name of the Lord, that is Yahweh, and we'll celebrate the calf. So the way that we'll worship God is we'll worship this idol. So they got the God part right, they got the right God, but they have no idea of the will of God. Moses is just about to trot down with the Ten Commandments and be like, yep, idolatry. Put that on the ground. And so what it is, it's actually a priest or a pastor of a church, if you want to look at Aaron that way, He's actually saying, this is the way that you worship God. This is actually good doctrine. This is, this is sound orthodoxy in the church. And the people are swallowing it up, following it along. This is not the will of God. They didn't wait for Moses to come back. Is God's will what you are seeking for your life? Or in the silence? Or it's just too hard and you don't want to? So you're just plotting it yourself. This is God's will for my life, the one that I want to do. This is called a perversion. And what you'll stop doing, maybe you never have done, is actually inquired of the Lord. What is your will for me? The remedy for following a perverse or a crooked faith is to seek God and his will. Flip your prayer life around. Had the disciples asked, the Lord would have happily revealed. That is the whole reason Jesus is communicating it to them. I want you to know what is going to happen. But the generation is crooked and they don't want to know. The Lord in his grace has given you the gift of prayer to communicate to him so that you might repent of your disinterest in living for him and to actually ask and seek of him what it is that you want from me. And you can pray that to him now. Lord, open my ears because I know that I've shut them from your word to learn anything that you want me to do. Help me not to lean on my own understanding of what I think I want to do that you should just bless and help me to actually lean on you. As Ian Bounds puts it, an author that writes a lot on prayer and I just love his work, he says, a prayerless people is the sign of a faithless people. They no longer seek after God in his will. We need daily seeking for God and his will. This is how we remedy unbelief or perversion of faith. We move down to point number three. Unbelief causes division amongst God's people. You can so easily already see the knock-on effect if you follow this story through. Unbelief is prevailing, so the enemy, he's still at his work. Paul's words, he's got a foothold. Then through his foothold, he just perverts the people and their faith to chase half-truths. And so eventually what you have is a bunch of people running after golden calves and they're saying, well, this is what God looks like. I fashioned him myself. Right? That's the perversion of faith. And what we do when we make our little self-images that we want to worship, we get really proud of that little God that we made up and we want to protect it. And so we get really annoyed at other people when they look to chip our little God away that we made up into the image of Jesus. 
It's puffed up arrogance and pride. And what we end up doing is we end up devouring each other and getting jealous and all sorts of things. It says an argument broke out amongst them about who was the greatest of them. How easy for this argument to start up to? Just how easy? Imagine coming strolling down off that mountain. <laughs> Boys, we're the inner circle. You know, we, we saw Jesus do this really cool thing. You weren't there. Sorry. <laughs> It'd be so easy. Imagine coming back down the mountain. Oh, you boys can't uh, rebuke demons anymore. What happened? It's just so easy to do that. And even in our own lives and in our own churches, it's easy to do this, to just start to look at other people. And we start to see other people, and this is the grossest one, and I know it's been in my heart. You look at other people, and what you do is you see how well they're pursuing the Lord. And where I should be sitting there going, wow, look at the Lord working in their life. And sometimes I'm like, well, what about me? And I get jealous because I'm comparing myself to another person. And sometimes it can be the other way. Sometimes we wake up in the morning, you know, we did our Bible reading for the morning, we really spent some time in prayer with God, and then for the rest of the day we're kind of walking around like every other Christian, like, no, I'm just holier than you. I don't know why we do that, but it's in our heart. We're better than you. It's a comparison game and it builds pride and it puffs up and it makes us arrogant. And Jesus knows that this is in the hearts of his followers. And so he gets this little child, maybe even the same child, probably not, but he gets a child and he puts the child beside him. And so you're already thinking, oh, he's going to make a comparison here. And he teaches them. He says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For whoever is least among you, that one is great. Obviously, the greatest in the kingdom is King Jesus. It doesn't get any higher than that. So you're looking at King Jesus and this little boy. And you know who the greatest is. But Jesus isn't making a comparison. He's making a unison call. Actually, if you welcome him, you, you welcome me because I am with this boy. And God, my father, is with this boy because we associate with the humble. We associate with the low. We associate with the meek, those that are insignificant in the world. So if you reject him, you reject me. Understand what Jesus is saying. If this is in our church where all we are is these puffed up people trying to chase after how great we are in our spirituality and we've created these little hierarchies and these little cliques and groups inside the church where we all just look at one another. And one of these little humble, meek people come in who look like nothing. Jesus says, if you kick them out the door, you really don't have me in your door. I'm not here with you because you don't welcome me in. In other words, Christ is not in the church. So if you truly want to be great in the kingdom, be the least in the kingdom. Serve those, even if they're below you. Even if you think they're below you. And in doing so, when we serve, we serve Christ himself. Unbelief and perverse faith gives rise to this pride and this division because what we've started to do is we've started to look at ourselves in comparison to somebody else. So the cure is humility. You need to shift your eyes 
Scripture tells us that humility is something that we can put on, something that you can do. Colossians 3.12. A human action given to us by the grace of God to help us in our unbelief. When you start to think that you're better than someone, when you start to become jealous of someone because you see the way that they're traveling, you think, I'm more spiritual, I'm elevated above these people. Just stop looking at people. Cast your eyes onto a Messiah who had to be crucified for your sins. Do you feel so puffed up and big now? That the Lord God had to send his son to die for your sins. Are you the spiritual elite now? And even if you are very superior in your spiritual walk with God, because I'm not going to deny there are spiritual giants and we should look up to them. And you're so far along in your faith, well, that's only praise be to God because of the graces of God given to you. We have nothing to boast in because the work is always God's work in us. And so it should cause more worship, not more comparison. Church, we are not to be at war with one another. And if we find that within our hearts, we need to put on humility. Look to Christ. And in verses 49 through to 50, I think it's just funny because we just have to laugh at the fallenness of the whole situation. Jesus just tells them, stop doing your little comparative work, lower yourself, humble yourself, And let's say they got that message. They're like, okay, we'll stop bickering within ourselves. John pipes up. Now, John, we don't hear from John a whole lot. He's not like this big disciple that always goes out saying stuff. But John pipes up in his very humanness, and he's like, well, okay, we'll stop bickering here, but what about that guy? (laughs) He just shifts his eyes. Okay, us 12, we got it sorted, but what about the church down the road? What about them? And the irony is, they try to stop this guy because he doesn't follow them. But that disciple or that unknown believer or whatever you want to call him, guess what he's doing? The will of God. He's doing the exact thing the disciples could not do. He's out rebuking demons in the name of Jesus. Just imagine it for a second trying to shut down another church because they don't follow you, but when you actually go over to that church, they give up sins. They trust in the power of God. They're finding liberation in the name of Jesus, but no, they don't follow our doctrinal ways. They're not a part of this denomination. So? Church down the road, we have to humble ourselves just like this guy in this passage, probably more faithful. It's humility before God. And even if they are more faithful, they're not a rival. It's a unity. They are on the same team. They are going the same way. They are doing the work of Jesus. We should worship God for that. Pride wells up from an unbelieving and a perverted heart. 
and its humility to see oneself accurately through a Messiah that bled and died for you that is going to crush that pride that wells up in us. If there is any good, if there is any greatness, it is the work of God in us. Humble yourself before God. We come now to close off this sermon, but we're not just closing off this sermon, we're actually closing off the series, which has been titled The Way of Salvation. We're finishing up in Luke for a bit. And because of this, I want to end with Jesus' words in the sermon, how long will I be with you? Because I think it's the centerpiece here. It's a bit of a heart sigh, right? Jesus' closest disciples, he didn't just have 12, he had a lot of disciples. But his closest 12, and they're just not getting it. Jesus has been walking with them for a year or more now. Guys, how long until you get this? How long? How long will I be with you? You see, because we might think, why didn't Jesus just go straight up to the cross and die for sins? And it makes sense, but the reason is, is because he needs people to understand who he is for when he goes to the cross, which is a normal criminal death at the time, they need to know what he is doing when he's on there. And I can't help but believe Jesus, although full of great compassion for this child, was frustrated and really saddened by his disciples when he comes back down because they're still mesmerized by signs, but they don't really know who he is and there's no faith. How long? How long must I do this? And there's points where Jesus could just do miracles until the end of time. And people would still lack faith in him. And I say this because we can sit here in this church, week in, week out. We can listen to the sermons over and over and over again. They might be the very words of God spoken all the time. You can listen to a million podcasts when you get in your car every single day on on biblical theology and so forth. And listen to all the worship music. Has it actually moved you to put faith in Christ to live according to him? Is faith being produced? Do you trust with your life? And if not, then I ask, well, how long? How many more sermons do you have to sit through? How many more spine-tingling moments of worship is it going to take? How many more data of bytes do you have to download onto whatever it is and listen to before you're actually going to start living for God, not just listening, living. How long? And I say to you who are struggling in your unbelief, to try and encourage you, look to the spiritual reality of what is going on. You're not just in your unbelief and it's just a human thing. Something's been sown in. The devil is trying to have some kind of work in you. Of course there's a spiritual reality behind you falling and tripping. This is the beauty of God. Look to this little boy. In all his human strength, he is trying to walk to Jesus and the devil keeps getting in the way. And he can't actually get there. The word of God has the power and the authority over the evil forces and it has the strength to take an unbelieving heart back into belief. That is where we all started. 
It also has the power to change a perverted faith back to one that is walking in alignment with him. God's word is not unhindered. Remember who it is. Remember where the power comes from. Seek the Lord and humble yourselves before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks again for your loving kindness and patience to us. Lord, even in the words of Jesus, how long, Lord, he takes them on another year. You want to see faith produced in us. You long for your people to trust in you. And I pray that that would be for us today a reality. To actually trust our life into your hands. To seek to do your will. Lord, if we think we are great, would you humble us before your son? Would we be like him in his suffering and in his death? where we would lower ourselves and serve and build one another up to do the actual work that you put us here to do. Not to use you like a genie, but to revere you as our God, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.